This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Yeah, awesome. Very good. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Journey of Unity number 12. So before I start, two quick housekeeping things. Number one is I just wanted to say thank you to Shani for setting up. And my wife really helped me just put this together because tax season and it's before you and there's like so much going on. And I was like, I'm going to sh- schmooze out a pasuk with you. And let's talk about a lot of the things that Chazal say. So I really just wanted to express Hakar Zatayv for these ideas coming to fruition like that. Um, the second thing is, is that anybody who's not yet on our WhatsApp group, I just wanted to throw out there, there's, I don't know how this works again, tinyurl.com forward slash Rabbi Epstein, and that will help you join our WhatsApp group to stay up to date with all of our classes that we have going on. Okay, now, what Pasuk are we up to? So the Pasuk we're up to is Lamed. Okay, so the Pasuk says, Laisira Levesa Mishaleg, that the Ishchael, the Ishchael, the man, the husband, the wife, they are not fearful. Laisira, they don't have fear. Lebesa for their house, Mishaleg from snow. Okay, they're not afraid of snow. So this is like a big mile here that this person is not afraid of snow, right? Why? Kichal Beza, because her whole house, Lavush Shanim, they dress in scarlet. So scarlet, I think, is a very abstract term. So I would I would just throw out there, let's just let's just use the word Prada for tonight if we can. Okay. So like this person is not afraid of snow because their their family's walking around in like Canadian goose coats. Like th- that's why they're they're not they're not afraid. We're good. If it snows, we're prepared. Why? Because we have ourselves our 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 fifteen hundred dollar coat. No big deal. If it snows, let let it snow. Yeah, no big deal. Because we got ourselves our 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 coat. So what does this pasuk mean in practicality? Okay, this person is not afraid of snow because her whole house has the coats that they need in order to weather the storm, let's call it, right, proverbially. So I want to break this down into three categories or three ideas, okay? So the first one is, Lysira is a term of fear, right? So Lysira, she's not afraid or he's not afraid. The idea of being fearful We've spoken in the past of the idea of connection being feminine, right? If you remember, we gave a whole share on the idea of connection being feminine. And we said that a person has to make sure even in their darkest moments, even the times where you may have to have um, a, a harder conversation with your spouse, make sure that you don't lose your femininity. And we spoke about the Yisad Ha'il, that the foundation of a home is emotions. Over here, we're going to take the liberty of jumping onto a different emotion, which is the masculine side of things. So I would argue that if somebody thinks through the idea of being fearful of something, like what causes you to have fear? When are you afraid of something? So fear is generally an emotion, obviously, which which makes a person, it, it comes about when a person is faced with something that they're not prepared to face. So it could be an emotional fear. It could be a physical fear. You're walking down the street and somebody's threatening you and you have a fear. So you feel, I am not prepared for this situation. Whereas if you were six foot five, and you were, you know, loaded with muscles, and there was a guy walking down the street, you'd be like, no big deal. It's, it's fine. I'm prepared for the situation. So fear is an emotion that comes about from a person who's not physically prepared for the situation that they're putting themselves in. Just a funny story just jumped into my mind. Um, a bunch of years ago when I was learning in Eric show, so I was walking, it was the summer, and I was coming home, and I, was, I lived in Arzabira. I was coming into, through the Arze Park, and there was a store that was like where all, all the people used to go shopping over there. And I see this guy, like an Arab guy, who's walking with a trench coat 
into the store. It was like the middle of the summer. It doesn't rain in Israel. It's not like you have to be prepared for the rain. So I see this Arab guy and he walks into the store and he's, he's wearing a trench coat. So I walked in after him and he's like walking up and down the aisles and I'm walking up and down the aisles. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if this guy is going to do something, like there's a bunch of like cola wives that are shopping in the store. Like I should probably be there to like be there, you know, in case something happens. So like I followed this guy up and down the aisles. He didn't buy anything. He saw me like following very close by and then he left. So a couple of days later, I, w- we, I was sitting in share, but I'm at Berkowitz. And Rabbi Berkowitz mentioned something along these lines. And I don't know how the story came up. And Rabbi Berkowitz said something like, oh, like if a situation would happen where somebody was there, like, you know, of course, like a person would run away or they wouldn't be there. And then he was like, maybe you, I mean, I'm, you know, he's like, maybe you, like, it would make sense that you would confront the person who you think would do something because you feel like more prepared that like if something goes down that you should be there instead of having some like Weibelach, you know, running, running, dro- dropping their strollers and running out the back door. So a person feels prepared, you're ready to take like confrontational measures. A person's not prepared, you're, you're going to run for your life, right? So in, in life, the idea of Lysira, that you're afraid of something, is usually comes about when a person is unprepared for something. And I would argue that the idea of Sheleg, right? Now we have meteorologists, right? But going back in the day, Sheleg was a disruptive thing. Even in Israel today, when it snows, they like don't know what to do. Like they pull out their sponge mops. And they start like shoveling the snow. They don't, they're like, Maze. like they don't even know how to, like, what do we do with this? So Lysira Mishalik means that a person is, is prepared for life, for eventualities that they may not be able to foresee. Those things happen and they're like, no big deal. I got this. I'm okay with this. That is the idea of being prepared for life. So Lysira is really an underlying emotion. And what is that emotion? It means that a person has prepared themselves and by extension, not only do they prepare themselves, they also prepare their families for eventualities that they don't know what's going to be in those circumstances. But Lysira, I'm not afraid. I'm able to maintain my equilibrium even in eventualities that are not able to be predicted. They're unpredictable. That is the emotion. I will tell you that what jumps into my mind when I hear this pasuk on, on a, I would call like a deep level, is every time I sit with a couple, there's, there's multiple things that are going through my mind as I'm hearing stories. And I, I, I listen to like, like, I'll call it the technicalities of the story. He said this, she said this, he did this, he did that, whatever the case may be. And I sit there and I like take down my notes with what happened. And then a lot of what goes into the back of my mind is what was the reaction to what happened? And a lot of times when I sit with couples, and you could ask, ask yourself this for your own lives, like the last time I was in an argument with my spouse or something went downhill or even with your own children, like when something happened, which was usually unprepared, somebody, somebody didn't do what you expected them to do, right? So your expectation was A and then B happened. That's the unexpected, right? It snowed. It rained on your parade, right? And when those moments in life happen, are you prepared? Are you prepared to maintain emotional equi- equilibrium throughout those moments that you're, that you're not prepared for? Are you prepared to be unprepared? Yeah. Are you prepared for those times when that happens? And oftentimes what I find, it's amazing to me that it's not even so much about what happened, but what the reaction to what happened was. And what I find is that a lot of times when I'm sitting with a couple, I'm like, yeah, what happened was A. And that was like 2% of the story. But the way you dealt with it, the way you scream at your spouse afterwards, the way that you lost your mind, the way that everything just descended into chaos, that to me is much more important than the actual story. Yes, it's true. He forgot this, or you did this, or you said this, whatever it was. 
That is true, but that's a very, very small piece of the actual story. The bigger story is the reaction to the story that happened. And I would argue that most people are unprepared for being unprepared. It's we go through our lives and we, we think like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. We're good when we're good. But when it's not good, those moments are when it's challenging. I have a very good friend. You, you would probably think he was just a regular, ordinary guy. But many years ago, I met him after he, he was dealt a very, very serious blow. Like he had like a whole emotional situation that happened to him. And he suffered a tremendous loss. And I was talking to him. And at first, I didn't know that anything happened to him. And he was just, he was, he was just sitting like, like as if everything was regular. And we started talking. And then it came to light that he had just suffered a tremendous loss. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, you're just sitting here as if like everything's good. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you literally just like your life, your life is pretty devastating right now. And he was like, yeah, it was, it was very hard. I was like, yeah, it was very hard is, is, is very, like, very hard to say. Most people would be like falling apart. He said, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, he said that this story that happened to him happened to him right after Pesach. Actually, it happened right after, right after Cholomite. It was right before second days of Pesach. And he said that the first days of Pesach, he sat down with his wife and he told his wife, he said, this year for the Seder, I just, I want it to be me and you truly, truly, truly strengthening our Amuna. We're going to go through like the Seder. It's just the two of us. We're having like the quiet Seder. Me and you just really, truly focusing on like Amuna, seeing the Yad Hashem and everything in our life. We're going to go through like, you know, um, the, the song of Dayenu, the story of Dayenu. And we're going to like think in our mind that even though we have an expectation of B, C, D, E, and F, but if Hashem only gave us A in our lives, then Dayenu. And then B, Dayenu. And then C, Dayenu. We're going to spend an hour on the song Dayenu, just infusing ourselves with Amuna. He said his Seder went literally till the morning. Him and his wife, just the two of them, just going through like, like saturating themselves with Amuna. He said, and then when this loss happened, he said, I literally was like, wow, Dayenu. That was hard. Dayenu. Like, Hashem gave me a lot of things in life, but didn't give me this. He took this away from me. Dayenu. It's very, very hard. It was so real. He prepared himself for something that he could never have foreseen happening. That idea is leisira levesa mishalek. That a person's not afraid. Your equilibrium is not going to fly high or fly low when something unexpected happens in your life because you've prepared yourself for that eventuality, even though you don't even know what you're preparing yourself for. You don't know what you're preparing for, but you're prepared. Okay, so that's the first idea. The second idea is interesting. It says, Kichal Beisa, because her whole house, lavosh shanim. They wear, what's that one? Makaj? Makaj? Yeah, they wear like a makaj coat, right? They're wearing like their, they're wearing their, their $2,000 coat, and therefore, they're good, right? Because even if it snows, they're prepared. So, let's tie this into what we're saying over here, okay? The idea of clothing, right? I would almost call this like a bulletproof vest. A bulletproof vest of emotions. A person is cloaked in something. We use that term a lot. Like this person's cloaked in humility, right? Even you find that with like emotion. A person's cloaked in humility or this person's cloaked in gaiva. A person, like what they exude or what they surround themselves with, you oftentimes judge a person by their clothing, right? That's the chitzainius. But the panemius, the inside, is what we're talking about over here. And we're saying the same way a person can be judged by their clothing, the same way if somebody has a storm coming, they can put on a certain coat and then they're prepared for it. 
The same way a person can do that, they can also envelop themselves. I think that's the right word. They can envelop themselves with a certain emotion. And what is that emotion? The emotion is bulletproof emotions. So how do you prepare yourself bulletproof emotions for, un, for the unforeseen in life? How do you do that? I think that the answer lies in one word, and this is the masculine side of things I want to talk about, and that is confidence. A person who has confidence in different areas of their life, a person's physically conf- confident, then they're willing to stand up to a physical confrontation, right? A person who plays basketball on a very high level, they walk onto the court, they're confident. They know that even though we're playing up here, and I don't know what's going to happen in the game, but I'm good. I'm confident. I'm not shaken by the crowd. I'm not shaken by the opponents. I'm not shaken by these things. I'm good because I'm prepared. I've gotten myself to this level that when I walk onto the, onto the court, I'm ready to go. So how does that work? It works. How does a person develop confidence? The answer, I believe, is that a person comes from believing in themselves and developing the skills that they need to get through life. I'll, I'll share this with you in a, in a simple term, something that my father taught me. He taught this to me by not teaching it to me, meaning he just did this. And it became a thing that my wife always talks about. He says, your father always does this. And it's, it's an amazing skill, but I think it's something that we don't think about enough. When I was a kid in elementary school, my father used to walk me to yeshiva every day. So we had this like time, probably half hour, 45 minutes, and we used to go to school. And on one of the first days, my father turned to me and he said, Have you ever, what did he ask me? He said, have you ever heard of, of, of a Fermi problem calculator? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. My father does that a lot. Like he mentions things that you don't know what you're saying. And then you're like, what is that? And he's like, oh, <laughs> funny, you should ask. So, <laughs> so it's like, okay, funny, you should ask. Well, what is this Fermi calculator? So my father said it's based on a, on a famous story. And the story goes was that there was a man who asked somebody, he said, how much does a piano tuner make in Chicago? Like how much do you think they earn? So if you ask the average person, like how much do you think a piano tuner earns in Chicago? They would probably feel like, I don't know, I never put my mind to that. And let's assume they make $50,000 a year, right? You would, you would just venture a guess, right? Or maybe you'd phone a friend, but you, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have like much of a formula for figuring it out. The idea of, of this Fermi calculator is that you, you slow down and you start breaking down the components. You say, well, first of all, let's start. How many people live in Chicago? Okay, it's a city of 6 million people. Okay. How many people do you know who own a piano? Uh, I don't know, my 10 friends, maybe four of them own a piano. Okay, so we could say 40%. So 40% of the 6 million people, let's assume, own a piano. And how often is a piano tuned? Well, you figure it out. I don't know, it's probably tuned like, I don't know, once every three years. Okay, and how much does that tuning cost? So you figure that out. I don't know, it probably costs uh, maybe $500. Okay, right? So now we're starting to put numbers together. And if you start following that formula down and you figure out that like, there's probably one tuner for every X amount of pianos, you can come up with like a basic range of how much a, t- a piano tuner should make. And it sounds maybe very, very, very funny, but my father was using this as a springboard. And the springboard that we used to do every single day was that my father would start off with a with a, a shayla or a question or a scenario. And he would say, what do you think the halakha would be in this in this case? And then he would present this question, similar to like Reb Zilberstein's svarim, if you if you have those farm, if you don't have those farm, it's a great tool to, to use with your children by the Shabbos table. It's like, in this scenario, who's Chayev and who's Pater and who owes who money and how much money do they owe? And the idea is to try to get your mind to not just guess a number, but to think logically, sequentially through something. And I think that the key to building confidence in a person and building skill in a person is to take anything. It could be anything in the world and to slowly and sequentially, first of all, believe in the person that you are either married to or your children, believe in them, truly, truly believe in them. Be like, I know that you got this. 
And whatever this thing is, I'm going to believe that you're able to do it. I'm going to encourage you to do it. I'm going to empower you to do it. And I'm going to watch your skill grow. Very few people are born on the top of the mountain that they magically can play piano or they could play trumpet or they're great at sports or they're really smart and they could just learn, you know, through Gemara Rishonim and just like most people are not. Most people have to put a lot of time, a lot of effort into becoming accredited in any field that they're in, whether it's medicine, accounting, law, whether it's halacha, you have to put years into that. And if somebody doesn't believe in you, if you don't believe in yourself, then you oftentimes lack that confidence. But if you have that ability to believe in yourself and believe in those around you, then that person becomes much more prepared for life. I was recently at a scene with my wife and we were sitting next to um, parents of the, the boy who was making the scene. And the boy got up and he like was about to start to see him. And then he stopped and he said, I really just have to thank my Rebbe. And he was like, and, and my parents. And now I'll make the CM. And he made the CM. And the parents who were sitting there, they turned to us and they said, we don't deserve the things. And he said, this kid, we were like, this kid can't learn for anything. There's no way. This kid, it's, he's not. And every time he would say, no, yeah, it would be like, listen, you're just not cut out for learning. Somebody else will do it. And it was a Rebbe who saw this kid and he said, wow, you're like, you're, you're a smart guy. Like, let, let's talk this through. Let's talk this through first out of the Gemara. Let's like understand the concepts. What would be the din in this case? You hop what I'm saying? Oh, you don't hop? Okay, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And this Rebbe encouraged this boy to get a geschmack in learning. And they said, we didn't believe in our son, but this Rebbe believed in our son. And this kid who's standing up in front of 500 people making a him. It's amazing that somebody believed in, in him enough to see it through all the way to the finish line because we didn't as parents. Most of us have innate abilities and skills and most of us are married to people who have innate abilities and skills. And if you believe in your spouse, in who they are, in their business acumen, if you believe in your spouse in terms of who, like just who they are as an individual, then who they become becomes a product of your belief. If you don't believe in them and you put them down, you belittle them, you're like, oh, you always have these like grand ideas. Then the person starts to doubt themselves or in some cases, they start to find people who do believe in them. And once was, um, what was the story? Oh yeah, I, I was sitting with a couple and this woman was complaining that her husband, every night he's running out, he's running out to different Rabbanim and he's going to different Shiurim. And we were sitting there talking and the guy turned to me, he's like, to be very honest with you, like... <laughs> Like, that's where I find my seatbook. Like, my wife just doesn't believe in me. She just doesn't listen to me. Like, I tell her of art, and she just rolls her eyes. So I go out, and I have my chavra, and I have my people, and they're the ones that I get my seatbook from. A, a couple is as strong as the belief that they put into each other. A child is as strong as the belief that the parents put into the person. And a person who walks around confident, not arrogant, but real true confidence in who they are and what their abilities are, it generally comes from somebody who truly, really believes in them. And this is not an easy thing. I think that this is something that can sometimes take work. But if a person does that, and they're sometimes pushing their spouse, I do believe in you, even though you don't believe in yourself. I'm pushing you to the extent of your current limits. You'll find that those limits almost always expand. I believe that life is like tingy taffy, that if you pull it very fast, it just snaps. But if you slowly pull it, you find that you're able to expand yourself expand your bandwidth, expand your emotions, and slowly be able to encompass so much more than you ever thought you were able to accomplish. Most people want results today. So therefore, 
you're not making money like crypto money. You're not just flying through the through the moon like Doge Dogecoin to the moon. So you're like, okay, you're a failure. You're not an overnight multimillionaire. That's not how you build real wealth. That's not how you build real success. It takes slow, patience, being able to believe in somebody. So this skill is such an important skill that I think a lot of couples oftentimes struggle with. Okay, but be, being able to believe in your spouse, being able to believe in yourself, and being able to believe in your children is such an important skill. Which brings me to the third part of this idea. The third part is as follows. So we always say that this this idea of the psukim always has a biblical personality attached to it. Who's the biblical personality attached to this pasuk? The Medrash says this person is Rachav. Who is Rachav? Just 20 seconds of history over here. When Yeshua and Klai Yisrael were coming into Eretz Yisrael, and they were conquering all the different cities, they came to the city of Yerichai, which had massively fortified walls. And it was just almost impossible for them to penetrate these walls. So they sent ahead two spies. The two spies got into the city. They collected some data. And then the city was on alert that there's two people here that shouldn't belong here. And they were taken in by this woman named Rachav. Rachav was a Zaina, the Gemara says. And she was somebody who took them in, hid them away, diverted attention and then they finally got out of the city and before they did they had a conversation and they said to her um thank you so much for your assistance we're leaving and you should just be advised that your entire city is about to be destroyed and she said okay please don't destroy me and my family can you give me that and they said yes we will give you that if everybody comes into your house on the day that everything gets destroyed you can you can hang a a scarlet thing out the window right there's going to be this little thing out the window we'll know that's the piece that shouldn't be destroyed and that's exactly the story, right? Everybody's familiar with the story, right? But what most people are not familiar with, okay, is the end of the story, which is that Rachav ended up becoming a Giyaris. And Rachav ended up getting married to none other than Yeshua Benun, the God of Ladar. So you have a woman who was Rachav Hazaina, and she ended up becoming Rebetzin Benun, okay? That's who she became, okay? And her, her descendants became Nevi'im and Kahanim, from the most prestigious in Kali Yisrael, one of them was Yirmiyo Anavi. She was a descendant. He was a descendant from this Rebetzin Rachel. Okay? That's the story. And why is this so important? Okay? So this is the third part that I want to talk about. And I think that if, if you want to take anything out of this class, I think this is the piece to really focus on. Why was this so important? Because if you think about Rachel's life story, it was literally mikatsa el katsa, from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. It's one thing if I told you that Rachel became a water carrier in Kali Yisrael, you'd be like, wow, great, she saved, she saved her life, right? No, she didn't become a water carrier. She became Rebetzin Benun. That's who literally who she became. How? The answer is, there's only one answer. The answer is, is that Rachel, through whatever circumstances in her life or in that moment, she decided that she's going to change herself. An internal changing. And she said, who I am or who I was is not enough. If I'm joining the Amman Nebchar, I have to change myself from beginning to end. And that Mida of internal change was recognized by Yeshua Benun, who took her for a wife. What is that telling you? It's telling you that most people, if you ask them why it is that they're not happy in your marriage, why are you not happy in your marriage? Where, where are you struggling? Where are you going wrong? Almost everybody mentions their spouse's name first. They never say, because I. They never say, you know why? Because me, I'm just a little selfish. And it, I, I really have like an anger problem. 
just so hard for me. That's not what any, I've never heard one person say that. They always say, my spouse, they drive me crazy. They push my buttons. They push my limits. It's always about somebody else doing something to you. Like we are the victim and they're always, they're always the perpetrator. And it's always like amazing. I sit with two sides and I'm like, wow, two victims, right? And the other one's always the one that's wrong. But if you, if you switch the model and you, you take a different approach, you'll see dramatic, dramatic change. There's a, there's a halacha. The halacha says that when it comes to a nega, right? When somebody has like tzeras, it says, call, this is, if uh, Yosef Kugler is listening, this is, this is a good song, okay? Okay? It says like, it says, call, call an agam adam raya, chutz minigas atmai, which means that a person is able, if a, if a kayin wants to view a nega to say that it's tame, he can view any nega, but it, his own, he's not allowed to. When he looks at his own nega, he's not allowed to say this is tame. Why? Because I'll say, because a person, let's just talk about the negam for a second. When a person had saras, a nega, they had to go to the kayin, and the kayin would sit with him and say, yes, it's tame. And by the way, you also need help because you spoke Lashonara about somebody. So let's work on your own self-esteem. Let's work on your shmiras halashon, right? They would, they would, they would like counsel the person back onto the right way. So therefore, a person who looks at his own nega goes, yeah, it's tame. No, no, no. You're not doing the internal work that's necessary now for you to get back on track. And therefore, kal adam raya. If you're a kain, you could counsel other people. But mi If it's your own thing, there's no way in the world you're going to be able to change yourself. It's the most, it's the hardest thing in the world. And therefore, you are mechayif to go to a different kain and make sure that he's the one who counsels you. And Chazal say, that this is a fundamental lesson in life. Every single one of us looks at other people and we judge them and we belittle them and we put them down and we have a million reasons why what they did is not good. Call Hanagam Adam Raya. A person will see everybody else's flaws. Except for your own. And those flaws that we have, it's, it's almost impossible. Having somebody in your life, and I would argue this is probably one of the most fundamental elements of marriage is somebody who challenges you and you welcome the challenge. You welcome it. You say, thank you. I appreciate you pointing out that I have to work on myself, that I have to be calmer, that I have to be more patient. Having somebody like that in your life is the single greatest matana that Hashem could give you if you're willing to listen. If you're not willing to listen, then it's just fireworks. Having somebody who actually challenges you, but you're willing to say, oh my goodness, like I didn't See that about myself because I'm an Igebidavar, because I just don't see my own flaws. Like we all don't, we all don't. But the ability to like lower yourself and listen and change, that is the key to, to, to transforming your marriage, transforming your children, besides transforming yourself. And I would argue that the way, the key to transforming your husband or your wife or your children is by first looking in the mirror and taking complete responsibility, saying, you know who's at fault? I'm at fault. Maybe not 100%. Maybe not 100%. 20%. Can we start with that? 10%? Can we take 2%? 2%? Something? And you'll find when, when you start like verbalizing, like, I shouldn't have reacted that way. I shouldn't have said things that way. Maybe I could have been calmer. You could even use the word maybe if it makes you feel good. Like, maybe I should have done this. I could hear somebody saying that, right? A lot of times when I sit with one, one spouse, that's also with a husband, 
and I'll say, tell me what's going on. I'll say, just keep in mind, I'm going to talk to your wife. So, right. Or like, what would your wife say about the same situation? You say, well, she would say this and this and this. Okay. So that's a pretty good argument. No. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, she's not here right now to defend herself. But if you, if you, if you're able to take that real hard look in the mirror, it brings about so much change, taking a highest for your own change and for your own life. Just to share with you two quick stories that I think are just super important here. One story, which I just saw, was with the Manchester Rosh Hashiva. So the story goes that there was a boy, I'm going to make this up, he was in ninth grade, and this boy was sick throughout the whole year. He was sick, wasn't feeling well. Basically missed the entire year of yeshiva. Came the end of yeshiva, he got better, Baruch Hashem. It was coming towards the summer break. And he basically missed the whole ninth grade. So the Manchester Rosh Hashiva said to the boy, you know, I sat with your Rebbe, the Menahal, Mashkiach, everybody. We decided that since you missed ninth grade, you have to go over ninth grade once again. So the boy was like, but like, I don't want to, like, <laughs> I missed ninth grade, you know, like, true. But my friends are like going ahead, like into 10th grade. He's like, yeah, but you missed ninth grade. You can't go into 10th grade if you miss ninth grade. So he was disappointed. But that was the end of the conversation. A few weeks later, a man called up to Manchester Rosh Hashiva and he said, Hi, Shalom Aleichem Rosh Hashiva. You don't know who I am. I'm just a regular guy. I'm making this up. 25-year-old guy. 25-year-old guy happened to live next to this boy and his family. And I heard the situation that he missed the whole ninth grade. And, you know, unfortunately, the yeshiva feels that it's time to leave him back. So the Manchester Rosh Hashiva said, Yeah, it's true. That's the story. He said, Rosh Hashiva, I just... Be me. I'm not trying to step into anything I shouldn't step into, but I know the boy and I know the family, and this is a sensitive boy, and he has all of his friends that he was with in yeshiva since elementary school, and I really think the yeshiva has to think long and hard about leaving him back because it's gonna affect him if he if he doesn't have any of his friends. He's now being left back, which is first of all, you know, looks bad, and second of all, he has a whole new friend group that. It's just really not so gishmak. Can the Rosh Hashiva think about maybe coming up with some sort of Eitzah that would work for this boy? The Rosh Hashiva said, I hear you. I'll think about it. He called him back a few days later and he said, you know, I thought about it and I'm, I'm coming up with a solution like this. What's the issue with the boy going to 10th grade? That he's not ready for 10th grade, right? If we can take Achrayas, the boy could take Achrayas for his learning to make sure that at this level, meaning he has outside tutors and his people that keep him up to date. And he's tested, but not from somebody in the yeshiva, because in the yeshiva, we might be biased that we held him back. Somebody else outside of the yeshiva says he's up to speed. Then the yeshiva is asking to let him go to the 10th grade. And that's what happened. This boy went into the 10th grade. He put in a lot of time outside in order to make up for the time that he missed. He was tested and he had a great 10th grade, grade 11th grade, great you know, onward into, into yeshiva. He, he, he succeeded very well in yeshiva. A few years later, the Manchester Rosh Hashiva was in a shul on Shabbos. And this guy comes over to him. And it was this 25-year-old man who is now 30, 35, however old he was. And he just waited on the line to say good Shabbos to Rosh Hashiva. And at the end of the thing, he shook the Rosh Hashiva's hand and he just said good Shabbos. The Rosh Hashiva might remember my father. He learned in the yeshiva many, many years ago. He said, oh, what's your father's name? So he said, told his father's name. So he said, what's your first name? So he said his first name. This was like 10 years after the story. And the Manchester Rosh Hashiva was like, your father, fine. Like your father was a very nice man. He's like, but you, you saved that boy's life. 
I can't believe how you saw something in this boy that we didn't realize would might be a problem. And you really saved this boy's life. I have tremendous to you that you were able to see something that we didn't see. Now, to me, what blew me away from this story was the Anivas of the Manchester Rosh Hashiva. Could you imagine calling up a Rosh Hashiva and saying to them, I think you're making a mistake in your judgment. I think you're doing something wrong. Most, most of them are like, wow, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Chutzpah would even call me and raise such a question, such a problem. He had the Anivas to listen and be like, maybe I'm doing something wrong. On somebody else's chajbin, this is going to affect them. And one thing I could promise you, every single time you have an argument with your spouse, every single time there, there are elevated voices in your home, when the emotional equilibrium in your home is not a little bit up or a little bit down, but it's more than that, you are affecting your children like you cannot imagine. You're teaching your children what marriage is. You're showing your kids. You know how you get something? You yell, you scream. You never once said that to your kids, but your kids learn that from you. Where do they learn their emotions from? Your entire house. The emotions in your home, it's our primary responsibility to make sure that those emotions are healthy. That, that mommy and daddy or mommy and tati or Abba and Ima, that we believe in each other, that we're, we're like, I'm looking out for you and that we take responsibility if something happens. And when you take responsibility, you don't fight back so hard. You're like, I hear you. Let me listen. Let me process. One of the greatest things you could say is, I hear, let me think about it. We don't have to react in two seconds. This ability to do that builds a home. It builds the foundations of a home. We spoke about femininity building the home, the Yisada Ayel, the connection of a home, the ability to believe in each other, to build somebody up is the other side of this. And I'll just say one more story, which I thought, I saw this story and it just totally blew me away also. Rabbi David Feinstein, if you didn't read this book, amazing book written by Shaul Besser, just an amazing book. This is like a, a masterclass, masterclass in Anivos and Gagos. I, I, I really encourage everybody to read this book. My son, we got this from my son and he read it. And then I took it and I'm like folding down every other page. Just the stories in here are just, you can't believe like this was the Gondoladar in our generation living here on the Lower East Side. It, it, it's a masterclass. David Feinstein was so calm always. No matter what, even if people challenged him and things like, okay, you heard another opinion. Like he, there was, there was zero ego whatsoever, but there was a story. The story blew me away. The story goes was that there was a father. And the father got, had his daughter got engaged. And after the daughter got engaged, his son became sick. The family was dealing with the illness. And the father said to his daughter, I would like to push off the wedding because we're dealing with the sickness. It's hard for me to deal with everything at the same time. The daughter was like, okay, I'm engaged. I'm a Kala. I want to get married. Like two-month engagement, three-month engagement, four-month engagement. But like you're going to push it off based on an illness. The illness could go on forever. I really want to get married. So they came to the Rosh Hashiva. Rav David heard the story. And Rav David Paskin, he said, your daughter is right. She's a Kala. Kala deserves to get married. You'll figure it out. You'll come to the wedding. It'll be fine. They went ahead and they got married. Five years passed by and this couple does not have any children. So the father comes to Rav David one day and he says, Rosh Hashiva, you know, I want you to, to be Mispal for my daughter. You know, like she doesn't have any kids. Here's her name. So the, Rib David turns to the father and he's like, yeah, like I'm an Adavan, but you should know that your daughter got married. Like it just, it wasn't like a, like a, there was something like that was holding back, like in Shemayim. Like it just, there was something that wasn't right when she got married. So the father's like, I knew it. I knew it. She pushed me 
right? She pushed me to get married on time and, and, and she was wrong, right? Keep it of aim. Where was my daughter's keep it of aim? Yeah, 100%. It was wrong, right? Rashiva, like, we're going to call her in. You're going to tell her? Sir David smiled. He said, she's not the problem. You're the problem. He said, you and your wife had a kapeda on your daughter when they pushed you to make that simcha. And your hakbada is what's holding you back from having grandchildren. She's not the problem. You're the problem. And the father walked out and he was in shock. He went and he asked his daughter for Mechila and says nine months later she had a baby. Why is that so powerful? Because it's impossible. A person sees everybody else's flaws. You're in a story, you're convinced, right? Yeah, my daughter, she's the problem, 100%. Rosh Hashiva, thank you. I have my validation. Sometimes it even comes with like a maimar chazal, like, yeah, like, keep it of aim, of course. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, it's no question, except when you're the one who's at fault. And you're the one who has the problem. A person does not see their own flaws. You don't. We don't see our own flaws. Having a spouse that challenges you, that, that pushes you, creates an environment where when you take responsibility, your entire house, your kids grow up confident. I come from a solid home. My parents believe in me. They push me, but they push me within my abilities to stretch my abilities. I'm pingy taffy. I just keep stretching. I didn't know that I could accomplish this. I'm prepared when something happens that's not in the ordinary course of life. I'm prepared for that. Why? Because my parents prepared me without even knowing what they prepared me for. My wife and I teach so many Hassanim and Kalas. I could tell you there's so many people we teach and we turn to each other. We're like, this person is not prepared for life. They're just not prepared for life. The first minute something happens, they panic. They're, they're like a deer in the headlights. Somebody just never gave them the basic tools and skills for being able to navigate challenges in life. Is one of the most important things that a person could give their family. And if a person does that, their family is strong, their children are strong, they're healthy, their emotions are pretty, pretty stable. I think that the, the, the takeaway from this, just a simple thing besides taking our fries, is just simply say the words, let me think about it. Just that's it. Let me think about it. I hear what you're saying. Like, let me think about it. Process it. Don't react out of anger. And you take the time to look in the mirror. And realize that you're not a perfect being. None of us are perfect, but we have a journey ahead of us. And part of that journey is working with somebody that presses our buttons. One of the most beautiful things you could do for your home. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.